as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, starting a new series, uh, it's a little different from what I usually do, which is um, to preach through individual books by going through passage by passage. Uh, this new series uh, is going to be focusing on surveying the first five books of the Bible, books written by Moses, books often uh, called as the Pentateuch, word that means five books, mainly a reference to the first five books of the Bible. They're also called as the books of the law uh, because they contain God's instructions and laws specifically for the people of Israel. The sad reality is this, even though these are foundational books of the Bible, uh, many in the church don't have a good understanding of these books. So, uh, by going through them, uh, not necessarily in great detail, but sort of walking through. My hope and prayer is that uh, as we get the thrust of each book and what it conveys, we can benefit at a minimum in two ways. Two ways, in case you're wondering how this uh, series will benefit us. Here's benefit number one. It will help us to love Jesus more. Help us to love Jesus more. Listen to what the Lord Jesus did on the day that he rose from the dead. You're familiar there's two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus meets with them. And um, this is what he did in Luke chapter 24. For your benefit, the verses are going to be put on the uh, screen there. Uh, so Luke 24 verse 27. Uh, Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, uh, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets was a reference to the entire Old Testament. But it starts with Moses. The first five books. He's explaining to them. These books talked about me. And later uh, later in the same day, his close disciples, they were gathered together uh, in the upper room most likely. The resurrected Jesus appeared to them and said these words, verses 44 to 45. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So in a sense, what Jesus, is, uh, Jesus did here is, again, he stressed the need to understand the Old Testament scriptures so people would know, in context, his disciples would know he was the Messiah, the Savior predicted in those writings. And uh, uh, we need to understand, it's not just the New Testament that talks about Jesus, but the entire Bible. Jesus is a central figure. And by understanding that, we learn to treasure Jesus more and love him more. And these first five books are foundational uh, to that. So that's benefit number one, loving Jesus more. Number two is, the series will help us live the Christian life even more faithfully. It will help us to live the Christian life more faithfully. How so? The lives of the people in the Old Testament includes how God dealt with them as well as how their lives sometimes when they were lacking in faith, how God dealt with them in terms of a uh, disciplining process as well as how God uh, helped them to persevere. So they, they serve both as a warning and as an encouragement. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul after he's talking about, uh, you know, the Corinthian church that was filled with uh, a lot of sins and problems, 
he gives a list of issues you know don't grumble don't be idolaters he says why he goes back to the old testament in verse 6 of chapter 10 so what he says now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did it's a warning look back at the old testament paul says these people disobeyed god and god disciplined them judged them that should serve as a warning and then verses 11 and 12 he says the same thing these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come so if you think you are standing firm be careful that you don't fall look at those old testament passages those those examples treat them as warnings but also when we look at the old testament it's not just warnings but there's encouragement and hope the same paul writes in romans 15 verse 4 for everything that was written in the past referring to the entire body of the old testament scriptures everything that was written in the past was written to teach us people living under the new covenant so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures as you see these people who endured you see their examples and the encouragement they provide in terms of how god worked in their lives didn't abandon them we might have hope so as we look at a life of a job life of an abraham or a noah they persevered by looking at their lives we have the record we can persevere we can live the christian life more faithfully after all second timothy 3:16 paul says all scripture or every scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness keep in mind when paul mentioned all scripture the new testament was still being written so primarily the scriptures that he has in mind is the old testament it is written god breathed and it's for our benefit and since these five books are foundational books we cannot afford to not have a good grasp of the message these books convey so there's much profit for us in going through a series like this it helps us to love jesus more as well as it helps us to love the christian life more faithfully by looking at the warnings as well as the encouragement these books provide and today as we start our walk through uh, genesis the first book of the bible we're going to do that by surveying the first two chapters of this great book first two chapters keep in mind i will not be able to answer all your questions uh, so it's going to be like you know try to catch the best as you can i probably might leave you with more questions than answers but you're always welcome to reach out later and uh, i did go through genesis uh, fully uh, years ago so the sermons are there on the website about 90 or so sermons i remember doing genesis 1 1 and 3 messages i'm going to do genesis 2 chapters in one sermon but god will help us the title of this morning's sermon is the god who creates the god who creates because in these two chapters we are told how everything came to exist while other parts of the bible refer to creation only these two chapters focus on how everything came to be how no other religious book gives these details except the bible why 
because nobody else can give those details except the one who was there and who caused all things to exist. And that's exactly what God in his mercy has done for us through his servant Moses. As I mentioned in the email, I will try to give you the uh, passage that we're going to look at the coming week beforehand so you can read those chapters. But also, when you go home, read the portions that were covered so you can get to see the flow. Even if you miss a sermon, they're online. Uh, so you can always go, but try to get the flow. Uh, that way, uh, my prayers, we can all benefit more. So let's pray. Uh, look to the Lord and ask him to bless us. Lord, Father, we come before you and uh, uh, acknowledge our utter dependence upon your spirit to help us understand uh, what you in your mercy have written down for us. Um, Lord, I pray not just for these two chapters, but for the entire series that uh, uh, you, you will help us to understand the significance of why you have written uh, these books for us and how these should um, shape our lives. At the end of the day, we, we really want to love Jesus more, uh, Father, and uh, we want to live this, uh, uh, this life that you've called us to live as your children faithfully. So please, uh, uh, please help us to experience those benefits. Uh, teach us to bow down and uh, humble ourselves before your truth. And, uh, and uh, at the end of the day, Lord, help us to fear you more, adore you, and... Um, worship you through uh, our wholehearted submission to you. The eyes of the Lord, uh, scripture tells us, move to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are completely his. Would you please take complete possession of our hearts so that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the word Genesis basically means beginnings. This book is about many beginnings. Beginnings, starting with the beginning of the universe, beginning of man and woman, beginning of human sin, beginning of God's judgment, beginning of God's promises and plans for salvation and the beginning of God's special relationship between Abraham and God. Genesis also tells us the history of how Israel became God's special people and how the promised Messiah Jesus would come through that nation. So, in a sense, it's a book about beginnings. Martin Luther described the first chapter of Genesis as the foundation of the whole scriptures. It's the foundation. He realized that the truth Genesis 1 and 2 teaches presupposes everything else the Bible tells. So, if we deny the account of Genesis 1 and 2, Two is really an expansion of Genesis 1. It's not a separate account. It gives a little more details. So if we deny the accounts of Genesis 1, in a sense, we are denying the authority of the scriptures itself. We cannot pick and choose what I'd like to believe and what I don't like to believe. That option is not given to us. Now is Genesis 1 a scientific account? If by scientific we mean if it is a true account of the material universe, then the answer is yes. If it's a true account, then the answer is yes. But if we mean that it provides information in a way it corresponds to the purposes of modern science, then no. 
It does not because modern science keeps shifting. And here's where we need to take our stand. Should we bow to the ever-changing views of modern science or bow only to the never-changing and ever-abiding authority of the scriptures over our lives? Answer to that question will determine how we view not only the biblical account of creation but all other truths in the scriptures. Right at the outset, I'm going to tell you where I stand on this issue. I take the events of Genesis 1 and 2 at face value. I look at it as a plain reading of the text. I believe the words of the one, the only one who was actually there and one who not only saw what happened, but caused everything to happen. If I can't believe the Genesis 1 account, why should I believe the other miracles of the Bible? Parting of the Red Sea. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus being raised and we having the hope of being raised. Faith takes God at his word. We must take the truths of the Bible all from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 as God's true word. So that's how I'm, I'm approaching this book starting with the opening statement, this monumental statement. Ten words in our English Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice how the Bible starts with God. Modern day evangelism of the church starts with the person. Bible always starts with God. Always. In other words, God the author starts with himself and notice he does not take great pains to prove his existence. He states he was and he is right at the beginning. That phrase in the beginning refers to the time when God created the heavens and the earth. This is when time, space and matter came into existence. And God was there. Which means God existed before that. That's why we describe the God of the Bible as the eternal God. The one who always existed and who always will exist. And, and we are clearly told it is this God who is the creator of all there is. That description of God, Elohim, in the Hebrew is in the plural sense. Some see that as a plural of majesty like the royal we. Sometimes people would talk even though it's individuals, we, we. Some look at it that way. Others also see that as a veiled reference to God being more than one person. We're going to talk about that in a little while. But the Bible and Genesis specifically, the foundational book of the Bible is very specific that God is one. Moses, remember Moses is writing this to the Israelites. We need to keep that in mind. During the wilderness journey, Moses is writing to the Israelites he needed the people to know and hold on to the fundamental truth. God is one. The Shema, that loud cry, God, hear, O Israel, hear. The Lord our God is one. Why? Why this emphasis? Because where are they going into and where did they come from? They came from Egypt, many gods. And they're going into the promised land, Canaan, again, many gods. Amongst all this, I want you, my people, to hold on to the creed. Your God is one. Monotheism. Belief in one God. 
Now we understand, even though this one God exists in three persons from the overall teachings of the Bible, we still affirm that God is one in essence, one in his being. That's why, even though the word God is in the plural, look at the next word, created, that's in the singular. That's in the singular, stressing on the oneness of God. It is this one God, with all three persons involved, which we will see, involved in the creation process. And that word created is always used in the Old Testament only when God is the subject. In other words, only God has the power to create something from nothing. We humans don't have such power. We can make or build or form something from something that already exists. God is the only one who can create out of nothing. Ex nihilo. That's the Latin term, out of nothing. Out of nothing. He merely spoke everything into existence. This clearly rules out evolution. All forms of it. Where did the first substance come from is the dilemma of the evolutionist. And some even go to the extent of saying that the first substance from which everything else came was also eternal. To what extent will the wicked heart go to deny the existence of God? To any extent. Why? Why? Because if you rule God out as a creator, then by a sense, you're ruling God out as the judge. I don't need to be accountable. I can live any way I want. So that is why evangelism starts with existence of God. You cannot talk to someone about if they don't even believe in God. No point in saying, Jesus is coming in judgment, you'll, you'll, you'll be held accountable. I don't even believe in a God. That is why I believe that God exists, Hebrews 11.6. That's where it originates. So our gospel presentation starts with God. Always starts with God. We are not here by accident. We are here because a holy and a sovereign and an all-powerful God created us and all other things that exist. That is why right at the outset, the Bible starts out in the beginning, God created everything. And the phrase heavens and the earth refers to totality of creation. Everything. Not only the earth we reside, but the heavenly bodies as well. The entire universe. Notice that word heavens is in the plural. This refers to, the Bible describes three heavens. The first one is the atmosphere we live. The second heavens is the outer space. The third heavens is typically paradise where God resides. Notice the order. Heavens were created first and then the earth. More on that in a bit. But here's the main thing. First verse clearly declares or introduces to us God as this majestic, sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise creator who alone is the cause of everything that exists and not Chance. God is the main subject here. Even though his actions are described here in a very simple and brief manner, yet they're really so lofty and so inspiring. God himself doesn't go through elaborate efforts to prove his existence. I am. That's it. I am. I exist. I alone existed in the beginning and I alone created all things without the assistance of anybody because nobody was there other than me and the rest of chapter one 
and all of chapter to describe the details pertaining to the order of creation. In verse 2, we read the state of the earth. It was dark and uninhabitable. Look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right here we're introduced to the, as we know, the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit involved in creation. And verses 3 through 31 will describe that. But let's pause here for a moment. What you do not read about in Genesis 1 and 2 is about angels. We're introduced to Satan in Genesis 3, 1. What about angels? What about angels? When were they created? I believe the angels were created right after the heavens were created, but before the earth was created. From where do I draw that conclusion? So you're reading into the text something that is not there. I think you know me better by now. I, I would not make such a claim without backing it up. At least, hopefully it's justifiable. Job 38. In Job 38 verses 4 through 7, God finally speaks to Job. And when God reveals himself to Job, God points to that he was there in the beginning. He talks about creation. Notice what God says. Where were you, verse 4, when I laid the earth's foundation? Notice, earth's foundation doesn't... Earth's foundation, tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it, on what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone. And then notice verse 7. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels, the footnote, NIV and NLT as a footnote, the Hebrew says, sons of God. Where the sons of God shouted for joy. Notice in verse 7, God is talking about the angels shouting for joy when God laid the earth's foundation. So they were there when the earth's foundation was laid. doesn't talk about the heavens there. When the earth's foundation, heavens talk about time and space. Angels are created beings bound by time and space. In the Old Testament, sons of God always refers to angels, both good and bad. In the New Testament, sons of God refers to believers. Both a direct creation of God. Angels, direct creation in that sense. Believers, direct recreated in Christ. So this is where my understanding is angels were created after the heavens were created so they can, basically angels live in the outer space. That's their home, so to speak. Powers of the air. They control the universe, the atmosphere we live as well. But that's kind of their dwelling place. Heavens were created Angels, they were there, they sang for joy when God laid the earth's foundation. I understand Job's a poetic book. We cannot make too many conclusions based on poetic books. I get that. But angels had to be created because they're created beings. So that's my, that's my understanding. And when did angels fall? Because what we read in Genesis 3.1, Satan had already fallen. So when did he fall? When did he take the uh, multiple uh, angels with him becoming demons? It had to be after Genesis 2. Because Genesis 1.31, God says everything was very good. 
All creation very good. So Satan had not fallen. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But by the time Genesis 2 ends, everything is good. No fall of angels, no fall of mankind. Everything is perfect. Back to Genesis 1. So here in verses 3 through 31, we're given an orderly description of the six days. To help you, there's a little image that's thrown there. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to walk us through quickly verses uh, one through uh, 3 through 31. This is just to kind of give you a visual representation how you'll see. You, you look at the first three days is God forming the universe. And the next three days of the six days, God filling it. There's a parallel. One is parallel with four. Two is parallel with five. And day three is parallel with day six. You can look at that and as I read the text, make that correlation. Day one is when God created. Remember day, uh, we, we read in verse two, darkness. So day one, God creates light to separate from darkness. Look at verses three through five. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice all God did was to speak and light came to exist. This light was not the light from the sun or the moon or the stars. Those were created only on day four. A temporary source of light. Special kind of light, perhaps God's glory, the Shekinah glory. In Revelation 22 and verse five, this is what we read. Revelation 22 says, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. doesn't say sun won't exist. It says they don't need the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So God is, we are living in glory along with God. So there is that light aspect. Maybe it's the same light that was in Genesis 1 which was then in the created universe replaced by sun, moon, and the stars. We don't know. But it was a temporary source of light. Then verses 4 and 5 expand what happened after this light came into existence. God saw that the light was good, indicating his pleasure and his stamp of approval, and he separated the light from the darkness. Right at the beginning, we're given this separation, light and darkness. Light and darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Day two, God created the sky to separate the waters from above and below. Look at verses six through eight. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. This is what we call as a sky. This is the space that we have from up there sky and earth below the space. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Again, you, you're going to see this repetition. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. Day three, God creates the seas, the dry land, plants, and the trees. Verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 9 and 10. Record of how the seas and dry land appeared. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Again, God said it happened. 
That's sheer power. By the word of the Lord, we read in Psalm 33 earlier, everything was created. That's sheer power. That's sheer power. God speaks things into existence. And notice again in the verse 10, God is pleased with this creation and God saw that it was good. And verses 11 through 13, we're given the description of the various kinds of plants and seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. Would you notice those words according to their kinds repeated three times in just two verses? According to their kinds, according to their kinds. Why? What's the significance you may ask? Simple. The Bible does not speak about macro evolution, one species to another, but it does talk about micro evolution, changes within species. In other words, you have the existence of different kinds of apple trees, but never an apple tree bearing tomatoes. Okay? That's kind of different kinds of dogs different kinds of cats, but a dog becoming a cat, that's macro. Bible does not speak about that. And we read the same phrase about God being pleased at the end of verse 12. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So now you have in days one, two, three, God has formed everything. Now, four, five, six, he's going to start filling it appropriately. On day four, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Look at verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 16, God made two great lights. The greater light, <coughs> referring to the sun, which is about 93 million miles away, to govern the day and the lesser light, referring to the moon, which is about 235,000 miles away to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. I just want to draw your attention. I'm always drawn by the last part of verse 16. It's almost like an afterthought. He also made the stars. It's like saying, oh, by the way, he made the stars. When you think about this galaxy that we live, the stars, the Bible says he counts the number of stars. Man is still trying to come to some kind of an understanding. It's like, oh, sorry. P.S. He threw the stars into existence. That's the God of the Bible we are called to fear, revere, and bow down. Day five, God created the sea creatures and the birds. Look at verses 20 through 23. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it. 
according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Again, we see that phrase according to their kinds. And this is the first time we see God blessing his creation, starting with the sea creatures and the birds, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply. Verse 22, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Finally, we come to day six, a very busy day, but also a very significant one. Here's where God created the land animals and, as some describe, the crowning jewel of his creation, man and woman. Look first of all in verse 20, verses 24 through 25. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. You think God foresaw this debate about evolution when he created? He's put it in the text for us. Beware of these kind of false teachings that will come. Sir, clearly God is conveying the message that evolution of one species to another is ruled out only different kinds of different kinds within a given species different types of cows reptiles different kinds of lions and so on and so forth once again we see the familiar words of god's approval and god saw verse 25 the end it was good then comes this crowning moment creation of mankind verse 26 then god said let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice so far, nothing has been created in God's image. Only now, something is being created in God's image. That's man and woman. To, get, to carry God's image means to carry certain attributes of God. Even angels are not created in God's image. Remember that. Only man and woman. That is why human beings alone are given the authority to rule over all of the creation. Notice again in verse 26, we read about the plurality of the Godhead. Let us, let us, not just a royal we, but gives us the hint. We've already seen two persons of the Godhead. God the Father and God the Spirit. We'll look at the second person a little later. The doctrine of Trinity, yes, cannot be deduced from Genesis 1 alone. But Genesis 1 does, in my mind, set the stage for the fuller revelation that we have from all of Scripture now. And verses 27 through 30 describe God's blessing to what he has created and his commands in terms of how he has provided especially for not just human beings, but other living creatures that he created. Look at verse 27 first of all. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Very clear right at the outset. Only two sexes. No macroevolution. Man becoming a woman. Woman becoming a man. 
that is not according to God's perfect design. That's a perversion of God's design. No matter what lie is being fed to us, shoved down our throats, and it's only going to be more. But we again have to take the stand. Do I want to believe in Genesis 1? Or what people tell us today? Right there. Jesus quotes this actually in the Gospels. In the beginning he created the male and female. And for the second time he's he's pronouncing a blessing and a command to increase in number. It's also to mankind. But notice he also commands them to act as rulers on his behalf over all the other things that he has created. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Human beings alone are commanded to subdue and rule the earth. That's part of being created in God's image. They are to act as God's representatives on earth. Some would say his vice regents. We're acting on his behalf. Like God, we have the capacity Limited in extent though, to make decisions that either positively or negatively affect the earth. At this point in history, in Genesis 1 and 2, there was nothing but wise rulership. Because sin hadn't entered yet. Wise rulership. And a gracious God gave all the provisions that they needed to sustain their physical needs. Look at verses 29 and 30, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant, every, notice the generosity of God, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and it was so. Notice the thrust on every, every, every. We'll connect this next week when Satan comes and moves Eve's Eve's eye away from this gracious, benevolent God who gave them everything. And here there's no death in this perfect universe. Plants as food to sustain all the living creatures. And the chapter ends with this note about God's pleasure and his final stamp of approval. Verse 31, God saw that all God saw all that he had made and it was, notice this time, this one word that is added, very good. He made a world that even he fully approved of. For the first time, he says, very good. Why? Most likely because of the creation of mankind in his own image. Nothing else created in his image until now. And then we read the familiar statement. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. And chapter 2 verse 1 gives us the concluding summary. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. Creation work completed in six days. Creation is not continuing to evolve. It was finished. The universe that was created was a fully developed universe. Meaning... There were plants with fruits in them already. There were fully grown trees. Adam and Eve were not children, but fully grown adults. And this settles the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? 
was actually a hen that came first. So fully developed universe, fully mature universe. On the seventh day, God rested. Please, when we, when we read God rested, it is not to say that God was tired. Isaiah 40, verse 28, that familiar verse tells us the creator of the ends of the earth will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. God did not rest because he was tired. He rested because the creation was fully completed. The work of creation done. It's a rest from completion. Not because of getting tired. And verses 2 and 3 tell us by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. That word Sabbath comes from the root word that's translated rested. Has the idea of stopping or ceasing. No more creation to do. It's done. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that had been done. Though the official Sabbath for the nation Israel is not instituted here, the idea had its origins here. So here we have the real account of creation. The real account of creation. From the one who was there and who caused all things to come into existence, God himself. It's easy, like the chart looks, you know, three days of forming, three days parallelly, God filling it. One little thing before we survey chapter two, it's concerning the days of creation. Was it 24-hour days? Or are the days meant to be interpreted as something else of a prolonged duration? Again, I see it as a straightforward rendering. Each day, is of a 24-hour duration. Six successive days of 24 hours of duration. Yes, the Bible sometimes talks about a day is like a thousand years. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But in those instances, the text is clear. The day is like a thousand years. This is not like that. The text does not read that. It's very specific first day, second day, third day, and then that repeated phrase, there was morning, there was evening. All that makes it very clear. But let me point to you to something. Point to you to something that helps you to understand this better, hopefully. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, context here, Moses is instituting the Sabbath. The people are there, Israelites. This is the command Moses gives about the Sabbath. And notice how he connects the creation week with the Sabbath. Pay close attention, please. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, verse 8. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Then notice what he's giving us a basis to follow. The basis upon which this command is given. 4, verse 11. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God is giving the nation the pattern of the week, including Sabbath, based on the pattern he set. 
Creation Week. Put yourself, let's put all ourselves, Mount Sinai. Moses is giving this command. We're hearing this. Are we going to conclude? Okay, today we follow the six days of creation, 24 hour days, and the seventh day of the week. But in creation, it was not six successive days. It was one day could be a thousand years. Would that be your understanding? I don't think so. Plain reading of the text. Because you understand, oh, this is how God created the universe. Based on that, God has given us six days to labor. Seventh day, you rest. It's a pattern that God himself set. Then there's the technical argument one can make in terms of being literal 24-hour days. That word for day in the Hebrew is the word yom. Yom. Whenever that word, yom, is preceded by a numerical adjective, that is like first day, second day, it always refers to a 24-hour day. That is how it appears throughout the Old Testament. One example, Leviticus 23, verse 8. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord, and on the seventh day, seventh, it's a numerical adjective that precedes, seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. More than one commentator says that the Hebrew lexicons consistently use this word when it's preceded by that numerical adjective to a 24-hour solar day. And when those words when that is followed by evening and morning, again, a little reference to the 24-hour days. At the end of the day, I'm looking for my water bottle here. At the end of the day, it's a miracle. Whether it took seven, six days, the seventh day, or six million years, or six billion years. It is a miracle. Right? So, that's the point. But, I still lean very heavily on the literal. I mean, it's not lean very heavily. I just lean on it. That's all. It's a literal interpretation. I take it and I, and I want to encourage all of us. Let's take it at face value. God meant what he said. There are no mysteries. There are no hidden codes. It's a plain reading of the text. And we look at Genesis 2. Genesis 2 gives more details of the creation unit. Now remember, Genesis 2 is not a separate account. It gives more information about the events given in Genesis 1. So I'm going to briefly touch on a few areas. Verse 7, we're given more details about the creation of the first man, Adam. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So far, God spoke everything into existence. But when it came to the creation of Adam, God used pre-existing material dust from the ground. Not only that, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Even living creatures, we don't read that. And the man thus became a living being. We are told God placed Adam in the garden of Eden. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And we're given this crucial detail in verse 9 about what was in the middle of the garden. The Lord God made all kinds of trees that grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verses 10 through 14 describe the four rivers that watered the whole land. 
And verse 15, very important verse. God gave the man a job to do. Work existed before the fall. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Not only was Adam given the responsibility to be a gardener, but also to be a protector, implied by the phrase, take care of it, guard it. And then notice what God said. Verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Please notice the magnanimity of God. Free to eat from any tree. We saw in chapter 1, every, 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 everything was given. The stress in Genesis 1 and 2 is on the lavishness of God. We'll see how Satan perverts that when he enters the scene. Chapter 3. For the first time, God mentions death and it was in keeping with breaking his command. The language almost seems to imply Adam will disobey. When you eat from it, when you, then you will certainly die. Adam had a responsibility. Keep the sanctity of the garden because this is where I'm going to meet with you I'm going to commune with you. Right from Genesis to Revelation, God's desire is to be present with his people, to dwell with his people, which means it has to be a holy setting. Keep the sanctity of the garden, Adam, by walking in obedience. Then look at what else God in his love did, verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said it is not good. First time God saying something is not good in chapters 1 and 2. It's in this. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the search began. Adam's search for helper involved the man naming all the animals. And as animals were brought to him, he would name them all. Naming was also a way of exercising authority over the creation. But still no suitable helper for Adam was found. So once again, God decided to act on his own. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. By taking the woman from the side of the man, God ensured that in every way she would also be human in every way as Adam was. Gracious God then brought her to the man. Notice the very first recorded words of the man. First recorded, full of joy. The man said, this is now, finally, at last. The time has come. I have a suitable companion. That's what that word has, that word means. This is now, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she, she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The man recognizing the woman originated from, names her appropriately, woman, extension of his word, came from me. And by naming her, Adam clearly shows his headship and leadership over her because we saw earlier naming someone signified authority over that person. This is not sinful leadership, but in God's design, the man is the head of the house. That is God's design. And that close bond that marriage is supposed to produce, that word united 
and one in flesh clearly push towards that. The two are in perfect harmony here. A harmony that is impossible for us even to fathom because we are so marred by sin. No barriers, no shame. That's how the chapter ends in verse 25. And Adam and his wife are both naked and they felt no shame. Thus ends the creation account. Perfect universe, perfect obedience to God, perfect relationships between husband and wife and between mankind and everything else that exists. Let's ask some deeper questions. What would this have meant to the people of Israel? They're traveling in the wilderness. What would Genesis 1 and 2 have meant to them? Much, much. How so? They're getting ready to enter the promised land. They're close now because most people believe that Moses started writing these as they were entering closer to the promised land, close to the end of the 40-year journey. They're fearful. What awaits them? Unbelief. Remember, unbelief was what marked the wilderness, the people in the wilderness. They had seen all the miracles in Egypt. And some were born in the wilderness. Some were very young while they were in Egypt. They're now getting older. They might not have seen the miracles. But for them, it was important to know it is the same God who created the universe. It's the God who's leading you into the promised land. In chapter 2, I don't know if you observed, chapter 1, you read about God, God, God. Only in chapter 2, you read that phrase, Lord God. The capital Lord refers to Yahweh. Yahweh God. What's the significance, you ask? Remember, God revealed himself to Moses through that way. I am. When we get to Exodus 3, we'll talk about that. So what the message is conveyed to the Israelites is this. It's this God, Yahweh, who has revealed himself to this nation, who has brought you out of Egypt. He's the one who created the entire universe. And he's the one who's going to carry you into the promised land. So do not be fearful. Obey him. Trust in him. It's a message of assurance as well as a message of you better fear this God. This God is of great power. Great power. Don't fear your enemies. They're mere humans, mere mortals in whom is but a breath. Fear God. Fear this Yahweh who created the universe, who revealed himself to Moses, who's brought you thus far, who's going to take you forward, who's going to protect you from your enemies. That's the message for the people in the wilderness. Bow down to him. Psalm 95 was given in a setting. It, it points to the setting in the wilderness. Let's bow down. Worship him. Don't harden your hearts. As they did in the wilderness. Now when we look at these two chapters from the New Testament perspective. We're going to have to ask and answer two questions. Number one, the first main question. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Second member of the Trinity. Was he there? Well, was Jesus there at the beginning? New Testament makes it clear, crystal clear. Not only was Jesus there, but it's, he was the one that did it all. Two passages, three passages actually. John 1, verses 1 through 3. The Gospel of John begins like Genesis begins. In verses 1 through 3, in the beginning, see the Genesis 1-1 connection? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. So we see this is someone distinct from the Father. Notice verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Who is this word described in verse 1? Verse 14 tells us. John 1.14 The word became flesh and made his dwelling up among us. Tabernacled among us. Pitched his tent among us. Again, God's presence. Emmanuel, God with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, it's this Jesus who is the Word, now incarnate, took on flesh and blood to come and live with us. So Jesus was not only there at the beginning, but it was through him that all things were made. He was the agent of creation. Not only that, Here's the important text, Colossians 1.16. The ultimate purpose of all things created was for Jesus. Look at Paul, countering some heresies that was happening in the church at Colossae. He says this, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And notice here it comes. All things have been created through him. And look at those last two words. For him. We exist for Jesus. You know often. Especially during this Christmas season. We talk about Jesus came into this world. For us. That's true. He came to redeem us. But you know what? Something more important than us. Than that. We came for him. Right? That's what the text says. For him. For him. I mean there's this whole sermon in the for him. Everything was created through Jesus and exists for Jesus. For Jesus. Jesus exercises complete authority over all things. No wonder often we read the Son of Man, the perfect man, exercising authority. We often look at the miracles Jesus did as the divine Son of God. We're not denying that. But also here's the perfect human being. Remember Adam and Eve, as perfect human beings, were called to exercise authority over Everything created. The perfect son of man. Exercising authority. Seas. Raging sea. Stilled. Demons under his authority. A lot of times in the gospels we read. People were fearful of the storm. But they were even more fearful after the storm was stilled. Stilled. They say, what kind of a man is this? They understood they were in the presence of someone who was supernatural. Someone beyond their understanding. But despite all that power, all that glory, he came in the form of man, lived that obedient life, subjected himself to all the shame and suffering, spitting, giving his back, offering his cheek, so they can pull out the beard, Isaiah 50, servant of the Lord passage. I did not hide my face from spitting and shame. I gave my back Hear my cheeks. He did that for our sins. In the light of that, we must ask the second question. What are the implications of Jesus being there? For those under the new, cov- new covenant, two broad implications. One, we have a vertical responsibility toward God, meaning we must follow Jesus' feet, acknowledge his greatness, and find refuge in him. We cannot refuse to submit to this Jesus 
who with his spoken word created all things. He is coming in judgment. We must bow down. We must plead with God to open our eyes to see Jesus as the only Savior who can save us from his wrath. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, it's Genesis 1-3, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In other words, only God can shine the light about the truth of his son in our dark hearts. It does not happen in your life still. Jesus is not your savior. Come to him. Plead with God to show, open your dark eyes to see the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You need that light to be shining in your heart. And for those in whose hearts Jesus has done that, for those who are a new creation in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Genesis 1 and 2 again, has great implications because we are not only created in God's image, but we are being recreated in Christ's image. That means again, we live a life of total obedience to Christ. And that responsibility, living in obedience to Christ, has a horizontal implication. Responsibility towards how we live with others. You see, there's a certain dignity that comes with being created in the image of God. In a practical sense, being God's image bearers, we are to treat everyone with dignity and respect. And if they're fellow believers, they're being recreated in the image of Christ with even more care and concern. In other words, our words and our actions towards others do matter. We are to continually be putting the interest of others above ours in every way. I don't jump ahead. I always take the back seat. This calls for a lot of humility, sacrifice and genuine love. That's why the New Testament makes so much about how we treat others, including how we view our marriages and our spouses because Genesis 1 and 2 has a reference to that as well. We are to be faithful to the marriage covenant for those who are called to marry. The New Testament does not say all are called to marry. It does describe singleness as a gift. If you are called to be single, you are not a second-rate Christian. I think parents should get that, especially those parents who keep pushing, pushing, pushing their kids to get married. And then they say, if it is God's will. Don't. If it is God's will, it will happen. Don't make that as an idol in your life. Read 1 Corinthians 7. God calls some to marry. Some single people are carrying enough pressure. Pray for them and let them be. I have to say that for the single people. They go through so much as this. Why? We as believers ought to know. Treat others with care and concern. Don't make marriage as an idol. But for those who are called to marry, there's a serious responsibility here. There's no question about it. Jesus himself quoted twice in Matthew 19 verses 4 through 6, Mark 10 verses 6 through 9 about the sanctity of the marriage covenant. And other passages like Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, they all speak of the high standards of marriage. In other words, again, there's a call for humility, love and sacrifice and most importantly, daily and constant depends upon the Holy Spirit. Our marriages are to be for Jesus. 
Again, we look at marriage as a fulfillment to me. Yes, but that's not the main thing. Your marriage is for Jesus. Just like your singleness is for Jesus. Glorify him. And as God's image bearers, we are to value the sanctity of life. This means we are to be unashamedly pro-life because every single human being, including a baby in the womb, is created in the image of God. That's why we fight for the cause of the unborn. Murder is a sin, be it the murder of an adult or of a child because we are created in the image of God and all human life is sacred. We call that the sanctity of life. This is why God himself established the capital punishment for murder. Look at Genesis 9.6. God says, this is after the flood, Noah comes out. God says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? For, in the image of God, has God created mankind. There's the reason why we cannot kill. Because of the intrinsic image of God that we carry. Even unbelievers carry that intrinsic image. Every baby, including a baby that the doctors may describe, has issues before he or she is born and advises you to be aborted, is born in the image of God and must not be put to death. So the issue is not how should we pray for it. We should only pray that the mother has the strength to keep the child and the church comes alongside to help if a child is born with some health issues. This is not a multiple choice question. Even a baby that is born as a result of rape carries the intrinsic image of God and must not be put to death. God hates the spilling of innocent blood. I understand the pain. I'm not trying to minimize that, that, that the mother would be carrying. But God's word trumps our feelings. That's what the text says. That's what the text says. Genesis 1 and 2 also affects how we view our secular work. Work existed before the fall. The curse made it hard, but as being recreated in Christ, the New Testament again says, work as you work for the Lord. Not for human bosses. Again, we work for Jesus. Not specifically just for that paycheck when, when the human master's eye is upon you. If you don't get that promotion, don't, don't start skipping work. As long as God wants you to be there, joyfully work because he will reward you. It is for Jesus. Nobody acknowledges you. Nobody even gives a thank you. You do it for Jesus. I do it for Jesus. That's the idea. That's the idea. All facets of life, we must remember we exist for Jesus, not the other way around. Yesterday we were reminded Jesus is not a vending machine. A lot of times we treat him like that. No, we exist for Jesus. Paul tells us if we live, Romans 14, 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Created for Jesus, living for Jesus. Yes, challenges will come. But we must always remember, Jesus is preparing us who are once far away from him, yet brought near by his blood, for that coming kingdom, the coming new heavens and new earth, which will be better by far. If that Genesis 1 and 2 was so good in its temporary state, imagine the new heavens and new earth in all its glory, permanently, how it will be. That's 
grace, we don't deserve. God is preparing us for that. And that grace should compel us to live for Jesus, the one through whom and for whom all things have been created. Listen to the words of one writer describing Jesus as I close this message written about a hundred years ago. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today, he stands as a central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as has this one solitary life. This is no ordinary man we're talking about. The God-man, Jesus, by whom all things were created and for whom all things exist. Let's live for Jesus. Lord, only you can help us to live for you. Please do that. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name and for Jesus' fame. Amen.